You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Lanyap Podcast with Greg and Doug Stokes. Today, I'm going to start with a passage about the Vanderbilt family. The Vanderbilt family was one of the richest families in the history of the United States. The patriarch of the family, Commodore Vanderbilt, ceded the money to start the university in Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt University. And the interesting part about the Vanderbilt family is that when Cornelius Farron Vanderbilt Commodore died, he left his family $300 billion inflation adjusted. And within 50 years, it was gone. So it's really an interesting sort of lesson in terms of family wealth, family money, and the distinction between wealth and money. So like I said, within 50 years, it was all gone. And there's a really good book on the whole family. And we'll attach the, a link to that book in the show notes. And I've, I've read it. And it's really interesting to talk to understand the dynamics that existed for this guy, Commodore Vanderbilt, who was basically a poor kid in the late 1800s that was a huge entrepreneur and started a ferry that went back and forth between Manhattan and a neighborhood and then then started buying railroads, et cetera, et cetera, and then became fabulously rich. And then he had this family that squandered everything in very short order. They owned a, several of the famous mansions on the East Coast, like the Breakers in Newport and also the, what's the one in North Carolina, Doug, do you know? Biltmore. The Biltmore, that's right. And that was part of the reason why they ran out of money is because they just did all these extravagant things. But Morgan Housel went, and one of the authors that we follow very closely, went into more detail and into the intricacies between wealth, having a lot of money and having a lot of wealth. And here's what he said, and this is just an excerpt from his article from The Rich and the Wealthy. Cornelius Vanderbilt left his heirs the inflation-adjusted equivalent of something like $300 billion. Within 50 years, it was gone. In between set three generations whose primary purpose was to compete on who could build the largest house and marry the bluest blood. The first heirs had some entrepreneurial sense of running the family business. Over time, the family business became insecurity and resentment. In 1875, an op-ed said socialites devote themselves to pleasure regardless of expense. A Vanderbilt responded that they actually devote themselves to expense regardless of pleasure. It was a game that couldn't be won, so everyone lost. And Reggie was one of the Vanderbilt's sons, was one of the last Vanderbilt's to inherit significant wealth. On his 21st birthday, he received $12.5 million, or about $350 million in today's dollars. Family biographer Arthur Vanderbilt writes, Self-indulgent, lazy, lackadaisical, Reggie had absolutely no sense of responsibility or purpose other than to keep himself entertained from being bored. He was never employed and never did a lick of work. Somewhat at a loss when asked for his occupation, he usually responded in quotes, gentlemen. The only way Reggie could distinguish himself was to live the life of a rich playboy. He did this with dedication and consummate skill. Reggie's two loves were brandy and gambling. The first left him dead at age 45 with cirrhosis so severe and goes on to say how sick he got, etc. But I think it's really interesting, the dynamic in terms of family wealth. And the article goes on to state that Reggie's grandson is actually a famous news journalist, Anderson Cooper. And Anderson Cooper says that he was, by the time Anderson Cooper came into existence, there was no more dynastic wealth. The article goes on to say how 
Anderson Cooper felt blessed that he didn't have that curse of the family and the curse of the family was money. What do you think about this, Doug? Well, the first thing that popped in my mind, which is probably not what you're thinking, is that Elon Musk just bought Twitter for $44 billion. He's worth close to the inflation adjusted amount that Commodore Vanderbilt was worth at his passing. And he margined Tesla stock in order to make that purchase. Tesla stock has to drop by 43% in order for that margin call to be triggered. And so I'm wondering if there's a possibility that Elon's dynastic wealth could uh, dissipate in a quicker fashion than the Commodore Vanderbilt family. So I, I doubt it. But I think that's a great observation. I didn't even think about that. And also saw on that same topic. So Elon Musk, he posted a text chain between him and Bill Gates. <laughs> but Bill Gates uh, propositions doing some sort of climate change initiative together or something like that. And Elon Musk basically shamed him because he was shorting Tesla stock for like a half a billion dollars worth or I don't even know, like a significant. Why, I mean, it's so insignificant to Gates. Why would he even have that short on if he's trying to solicit philanthropy right. <laughs> from Musk? But yeah, the other thing is that apparently like Gates is one of the biggest beneficiaries lately because something like Tesla is down like 20 percent or something like that. <laughs> so his shorts yeah. actually working out pretty well. So we actually talk about this all the time when, I mean, it sounds so bad to say it, but when you have clients that, you know, that come into substantial wealth, but, you know, don't have any purpose in life. And it's almost like a, it is like a curse that they have this money that's really holding them back from doing anything productive with their lives. Almost like being forced to be productive because you don't have anything to fall back on from family wealth and things like that. And so, you know, whether you have anxiety or depression associated with like what Reggie Vanderbilt said was, I'm a gentleman. You don't have any pride in work and what you've done to build your life. And and so there are a lot of situations like that in which, you know, maybe the wealth doesn't run out by the, you know, the third generation, which is sort of the historical, how long a dynasty lasts is, is generally by the third generation. How's the saying go, Doug? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. The first generation builds it, second generation grows it, and the third generation blows it. Yeah. So, I mean, we see that with clients and prospective clients, but I, and it is a sad situation to see. And it's sort of one of those things where, you know, sort of alligator tears for some people. But I would say it's not surprising that there's a situation in which there was no direction really made. There was this massive amount of wealth that was accessible to the family. And, you know, what's the purpose of working if work is not, you know, for profit, I guess, at that point. And so you had a whole family worth of people that had no purpose in life and had a whole lot of money. And so they just started spending it because they wanted to feel like they were important. I think it goes to the point of also like what makes people happy is, I mean, money makes people happy, obviously. Like there's empirical studies on how having more money than less money, actually, you know, obviously makes people overall happy. But that ends at a certain point in time. Now, I think it's, and Hazel gets into this in his article even more, the issue that people have, and this is what the Vanderbilt family had, was they constantly kept trying to keep up with the Jones or entertain themselves by spending or whatever. But at a certain point, you have to be able to live and be happy with what you have and not let the money dictate, like, because there's never enough really for a lot of people. And to the extent that you're making more money than you ever thought, or you have more money than you ever thought, or your family has more money than you ever thought, but you're never happy because you're going and spending more than you have. And that's just this sort of cyclical problem that these the Vanderbilt's had and a lot of people that have substantial wealth have, or, and especially if it goes 
you know, in several generations down the line. I think it comes back to purpose in life. And a lot of people find purpose in kids, in philanthropy, in work, in building businesses, and, you know, helping other people, you know, grow their uh, families and their livelihoods and their net worth. And so I just think that lack of purpose and lack of direction leads to lack of wealth. I think the, the thing that really having a substantial sum of money, and we talk about this with people too, is like, we go through these these planning scenarios and we go, okay, retirement date, age 65. At 65, you're going to spend X amount of dollars per month. You know, adjust that for inflation, a lot, a lot, a lot. And a lot of the feedback we get is like, yeah, but I'm not going to really retire at age 65. And so the answer to that is, yeah. So what does money really do? Money, if you've at least been a good steward of capital, provides you with flexibility and time and without you know handcuffs to a particular either profession or place or company, but it doesn't really provide happiness. I think the experiences that money allows for, whether it's spending more time with your family or traveling or just generally having flexibility in life, that is where happiness is derived. And I think if you're trying to spend your way to, and it, from a consumption perspective towards, towards happiness, that's when you get into that vicious cycle that we just read about. Right. And the other thing is like the novelty really wears off when you spend, if you buy luxury goods over and over again, then it's like at a certain point, it just doesn't, what kind of joy does that bring? I also think it goes to show from an advisory perspective, having trusted people in a network that are not just yes people that can tell you when you're doing something stupid, whether it's a professional or a family member to basically hold your hand through rough periods. And, you know, they basically, they were willy nilly spending money without anybody trying to tell them that they were being idiots. I think that that's a, you know, it goes to the value of having a trusted person in your life to knock you down when you want to do something stupid. In the book that about the Vanderbilts, I think it was the second generation, they ran out of money after the third generation when they built the breakers and built more. The second generation, the sole objective of the second generation was to be accepted by the old money in New York in the late 1800s. And there was a big portion of the book was devoted to the extravagant parties that they used to throw to try to impress like the, the blue bloods in New York in the late 1800s. And the book would go on to, to say about how much money they would spend on flower arrangements and they would have these these mansions on Fifth Avenue in New York, and they would spend like inflation adjusted several million dollars on flowers for one single party. And they did this on a regular basis. So it goes to show you the sort of like crazy level that people can get to in terms of spending. And that, the, you know, a lot of times like with the Housel quote, the pleasure was not from the expense, but they just spent just to spend essentially. And the end result was they ran out of money and they weren't happy along the way. Speaking of unhappiness, where we're sitting right now is, well, I guess we're having a, a big update in markets, but before today, and today's the 20th of April, markets were off about, what, 12 or 13% from their highs. And we got, you know, we had a big bounce back from the bottom of Russia to the end of, I mean, the start of Russia to the end of March was a big drop off and then a 10% recovery. And we've sort of retraced all of that. There's a, a great article that uh, that the group at Fisher Investments wrote related to stock market corrections and the the 
speed of corrections. And I think we should go into that next because there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, whether it's inflation and rising interest rates or war, food, famine, you know, rising prices, lockdowns in China. And we're getting calls from people on all of these particular subjects and just general nervousness that there's a bear market around the corner. And so they wrote a really good piece about the history of corrections. And a correction is defined by a 10% drop from top to bottom. And they went through every correction from 1928 through 2018. And they didn't include the, actually goes through 2021, but they didn't include the COVID, COVID correction because it hasn't been full cycle since then yet. But the average drop over that period, there's about 30 of them, maybe a little bit more. Average drop of about 15%. Average months from top to bottom of about four months. And so these things happen fast. I mean, the markets were declining in January and February before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So we're in sort of month four of this volatile period right now. Markets are off a little bit north of 10%. And so what generally what happens with people when you have uncertain and volatile times is they'll say, look, let's just wait for the dust to settle. Once the dust settles, we'll get back in. And so really the premise of this article was, okay, what happens if you say, once the dust settles, we'll get back in? Generally, markets have, the, the old saying is that they take the elevator down and the escalator up. And so if that's really the case, just get out, let the elevator go down. And then you know, once we start going back up the escalator, we can just jump back in. So this sort of debunks that myth. Markets takes about 4.2 months to go from top to bottom, average of about 15% decline. And then the six months after the decline, the average return is about 26%. 24 months after the average decline, it's the average return is about 40%. So the premise of this is you're better off just sticking with a game plan, doing nothing because nobody can, it's basically elevator down, elevator back up, and nobody's going to be able to get off at the right time and then get back on at the right time. It's just too difficult of a decision to make. You know what people mean when they say, I'm going to wait. I just want to wait till the dust settles. The translation what? on that is, I want to wait till prices are higher. Yeah. I mean, that's the, before everything has settled, the market has already recovered. We saw that in 2020. Markets were down 35% from late February 2020 to March 23rd, 2020. It was about a three and a half, four week period. Markets dropped 35%. COVID news didn't go away uh, over, you know, from March 23rd onward, and the market started rebounding. And people, the general thesis at the time was that this was a bear market rally. We're going to get a retest. People were still in lockdown at that point. There was massive stimulus coming in through transfer payments, payment protection program, quantitative easing. If the Fed was buying bonds, junk bonds, really, off the uh, junk bond ETFs. So the point here is there's just no possible way to get back in when the dust settles because by the time the dust has already settled, everything's over and markets have recovered. That's the real issue from a like trying to time the market and, and like waiting for the dust to settle. Our human nature does not want to buy when we think that there's a risk of loss around the corner and there's been recent risk of loss. And so the, really the only way that we, we think that the whole involving of sort of human emotions and investments are really bad combination. The other thing that Fisher goes on to say on here is that he thinks that bear markets usually end in a wall or a wallop. 
the wall reverts to the sort of the wall of worry that bull markets climb. And the wallop, on the other hand, refers to like a massive exogenous event that that makes it like a worse bear market, et cetera, like you would expect from like a pandemic, global pandemic or something like that. And he thinks that this particular bear market or correction is going to climb this sort of wall of worry. And he refers to the famous quote by Sir John Templeton that bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism and die on euphoria. And in his view, he he says it's pretty clear that we're far from euphoria. I agree. I don't think that we're in that sort of cycle of pessimism, uh, skepticism, mature and optimism. I think we're probably at the the sort of the the early stages of a bull market based upon the sort of sentiment that I'm reading and and seeing and, and Twitter and through clients, et cetera. What do you think about that, Doug? I think there was... Definitely instances of euphoria during 2021 and late 2020 with, you know, whether it was GameStop and those type the meme stocks mm-hmm. with the SaaS stocks, COVID stock, Dated the COVID beneficiaries, you know, Pelotons of the world. I mean, right. that, it was getting kind of crazy. NFTs, Dogecoin. I mean, it was getting kind of crazy last year. So I don't know if that was the euphoric period or not. Now we're in that sort of grind down. To be honest, nobody knows the answer to that particular question. If you look at certain areas of the market, so if you look at the sort of the small cap growth, COVID names, software names, those are down 80% plus. Some of them are down 80% plus from their highs. That seems to me like a that was a, a bursting of a bubble in an area of the market. Mm-hmm. Companies that sort of the evidence-based investing framework, which is not to buy high growth unprofitable companies, but to buy sort of slower growth, but lower valuation type companies, those still trade at reasonable price to earnings ratios, like somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 and 13 times earnings. The market trades at 18 times earnings. I don't see this as a euphoric period, but I do believe there was euphoria in the markets last year. And I think that portion of the market has been walloped, a mega wallop. And I'm happy that we don't have a, a whole lot of exposure there as a firm. But yeah, I think just generally market related, I don't see the the bear market component, but I definitely see certain pockets that have gone through the ringer. Right. You have these people that almost like a religious devotion to certain asset classes like Kathy Wood, who is the uh, manager of the ARC ETF, which was they had gathered more assets. They were up in the top five ETFs, I think, at the end of last year. And they're I think they're down 50 or 60%, but they were buying all companies that fit into a category of innovation. And they had attracted a ton of capital because they'd gone up so much. I mean, they've really been put in their place. They've gone down substantially, but they're still religiously devoted to it. Similar to like what you would see on the cryptocurrency side of the equation. But yeah, you're right. It did seem like there was definitely some euphoria in in certain areas like the the sort of innovation area of the the market cryptocurrency these things are obviously easy to talk about in hindsight because there's always justifications that you can make at the time especially when you have these sort of religious sort of characters that are just so devoted to it and constantly shilling their viewpoint on TV or you know whatever media but yeah i mean it's got crazy for there for a while with GameStop and I don't even know, but remember that Fizz was yeah, one Fizz, of those companies? 
AMC. Uh, yeah. It just got so insane for a while. And people were making money, you know, doubling their money in a day. But yeah. I'm one of those people, unfortunately. I mean, I don't um, think, I don't know how many people actually made money in the long term on that. Well, I think that's the funny thing. You mentioned ARC, ARC Innovation ETF. The dollar weighted return of that particular fund is negative because all the money came in at the top. Mm-hmm. That actually leads to our, the third thing we wanted to talk about today, which is sort of the the reversion to the mean of more actively managed strategies versus index type strategies. And so there's really two areas of debate in markets today. One is just a passive indexing strategy, which we're proponents of which is basically just own the benchmark, whether it's the S&P 500, the small cap benchmark, mid cap, dividend growth benchmark, et cetera. The idea here is that you own a particular area of the market for a very low expense. The other side of the argument is in more active strategies in which there's a manager or a team of managers actively picking stocks or bonds. In an attempt to beat the market, those strategies are generally more expensive than the indexing side. And so there's big proponents of those. So if you look at history, you have the groups like ARK Invest or or just more traditional active managers that go through periods of outsized return and attract a ton of capital. And this was an article by Sam Rowe that is basically states that in the title is past performance is no guarantee of future results. And it goes into this debate against passive versus active management and specifically outlines those managers who have beaten their benchmark. So there's a study that's done every six months from Dow Jones. It's called the SPIVA study. And it really is details the percentage of funds, actively managed funds that outperform the benchmarks that they're measuring themselves against. And over a year basis, I think something like 40 or 45 percent of active managers outperform the benchmarks they're supposed to beat. But if you go out in time, one, three, five, 10, 15 years, it gets to like 90 percent of managers underperform the benchmark. And that's because of fees. Generally, if you're charging one and a half percent as an active manager or even a half of a percent as an active manager, the return of your fund has to outperform the benchmark by a half a percent or a percent or a percent and a half in order to just break even. And so being able to do that year in and year out is very difficult. What Rose says is, okay, what about those, what about those groups that did outperform the funds? And that's, so he goes into the details of active managers who have outperformed that will outperform over a preceding period. And so the data is, top quartile funds, that's top 25% of of managers that went on to outperform over the next 12 months in 2018, 19, 20, and 21. Uh, There was 542 funds that were in the top quartile of all domestic active managers over one year from, you know, this is in 2018. So one year from 2018, 62% of them outperformed. Then two years to 2019, 37% three years to 2020, 28%, four years to 2021, only 1.66% of the managers that were the outperformers at the end of 2017, starting 2018, went on to be outperformers through year-end 2021. So it's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. So 1% of the managers that in 2017, if you went to, as an advisor, went to your client and said, these guys are top quartile. Five-star. Yeah, five-star fund. We're going to pick them. 1% of those top quartile managers ended up being 
outperformers over the next four years, you're better off just owning the benchmark in that particular stance. So people presume that professionals are better. So we've talked about how how people in general want to wait till the dust settles before they buy in because they don't want to lose money. And the presumption is that investment professionals, investment managers are better at that sort of emotional aspect in timing the market than a, than a retail investor. But that's just, this basically debunks that whole theory. And it is absolutely true that people in general, retail investors or institutional investors are are not good at beating the market. They're not good at market timing and not good at beating the market. So then what is the value add of anybody in the investment industry then? And I think that that is designing a plan, developing a plan, assessing risk, being extremely tax efficient and keeping somebody focused on the ultimate goal and maintaining that level of discipline through market cycles. That's real value add. The buying and selling of stocks at high cost with high taxes is not a recipe for success. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're coming up on 30 minutes. I appreciate everybody listening. Please like, share, subscribe, five-star review, please, and let us know how we can improve. But I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.